Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Behavior Chef Podcast. Today, we are checking out the story of Dr. Jim Moore. Uh, many of you might know him from the Behavioral Observations Podcast about a year ago. He has lost uh, a, a significant amount of weight, and he and I, I got to meet at ABAI, and we've talked over some of the groups on Facebook, and he was generous enough to come on our podcast today to discuss his current status an update from the last time you heard from him and some of the great things that he's working on now for health, sports, and fitness. So if you like what you hear, as always, find us on social media at The Behavior Chef. Go to www.behaviorchef.com and send us an email at thebehaviorchef at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Everybody, thanks for joining in for our second episode of the podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Jim Moore, who has a, a plethora of reasons to be here, and I'm going to let him explain some of those. You may remember Jim from, I believe it was about a year ago. He was on Matt Sicoria's Behavioral Observations podcast, talking about a, an insane weight loss journey. And now, one of the th- reasons that we brought him on here is to talk about his update and let everybody know what he's doing these days. So, Jim, why don't you go ahead and, and introduce yourself again for those that might know, not know you and just give us a little explanation about who you are. Great. Well, thanks, Clint, and congratulations on the podcast, and thank you for uh, inviting me to appear. It's, it's really a privilege to talk to colleagues and friends about all things behavior analysis. I agree. Thank you very much. Uh, no, uh, I think um, I think Megan Miller had, con- had connected me to Matt about a year ago, and really to kind of talk about a lot of the stuff that I do with early intervention and autism and peak. Uh, and as Matt and I started to talk, it somehow just came up in conversation that I'd lost, I think at that point, right at a hundred pounds. And he was just blown away by that amount of weight. And we started talking and I kind of shared with him how I had to really kind of uh, treat myself as my own client using behavior analysis and specifically some procedures with ACT to really help me get past that, uh, that, that struggle of being a morbidly obese man. And uh, the reception of that was overwhelming. Um, I just told a, a personal story, not really a story, a professional story. I mean, I'm, uh, I have some background in, in health and fitness and, and uh, coaching Olympic weightlifting, but um, you know that most of what I do as a behavior analyst now is in the autism world. So it's just really kind of sharing my story, and that story continues. Uh, it's changed quite a bit in in the last year. You know, uh, sometimes you know, and you're sometimes just as in any intervention case, you have to constantly question: uh, do, Am I still collecting the right dependent variables? And uh, so, lots of things have changed. I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of go through those. I'm usually an open book. Um, you know, sometimes to a fault, my wife shared with me how uh, much I just seem to just let people know anything they want about me. But it's because I believe that our science is a life-changing and a world-saving science. And if my story can somehow inspire somebody uh, to change their lives through behavior analysis, then it's worth the time and the effort. You know, I completely agree with you. Um, we have a similar background in that we were both morbidly obese men and We've used ABA principles and, and analytics of sorts to really dive into our own uh, weight loss journeys. If I remember right from Matt's uh, podcast with you, you've done this several times in life. You've what I used. Well, I, have a, I have a reversal design now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's I don't, great! I don't need another replication. I was going to say, do you need replication? Because it sounds like you have your causation and not correlation issue. I think I think uh, I think I've I've made all the conclusions about the, <laughs> about my A versus B phases that I need now, and I'm ready to just stay in. You know, I, I don't. You know, it's funny because when you're on this journey, you look at the word maintenance in a whole different way. It's yes. really, it's really, when you're talking about a lot of physiological variables and how they interact with private events and 
and things like that. It's maintenance is a really difficult concept to struggle with. It's just like continue this healthy lifestyle. You know, uh, maintenance is the best descriptor that everyone would know, but you never really maintain, right? Never. No, those variables, like you said, are continuously adapting to what's going on. And you have to, and, and the awesome thing is, is that data that we're very accustomed to collecting can help us kind of stay on top of that. Because if I just leave myself to, to this private hurricane, then um, I'm going to always think that, sure, I can have a whole pizza now. Sure, I, you know what, a little bit of this won't hurt me and all these other things. And that's a slippery slope if I don't have cold, hard, objective data to show me I'm staying on a values-driven approach toward my health and lifestyle. You're definitely right. I actually, I just, I laughed off camera a minute ago because I, uh, I resonate with that so well, that maintenance piece. And you said uh, that personal hurricane or however you put that, I thought that's a good band name. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I posted into the, in a couple of the groups from our behavior chef page about CMOs. And the, the little meme that I posted was when you ask a, a BCBA to explain CMOs. And it had a, a woman kind of looking, you know, with a, a glazed over look on her face you know, I got a bunch of responses and people laughed and everything, but that's kind of something for my own life. I really uh, dove into in those, you know, antecedent style uh, issues. What's, what's causing me to not be able to keep my maintenance. And for me, uh, and I know we talked about in our first podcast, we really wanted to use dissemination and not really discuss things specifically in ABA terms. So for those of you that are aren't listening. Um, these condition motivating operations that we're talking about are these things that, uh, basically, uh, are, are paired together with some variable in your environment that makes something that you want or, or feel like you need more, uh, desirable. So for example, for me, a stress response to a high workload for the day, I might come home and for me, that's paired with eating pizza. So if anything is stressful, I might automatically physiologically want a pizza. Uh, so for those listening that aren't analytic in nature, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Well, and I, I use when it comes to um, nutrition and healthy lifestyle, I think the colloquial term, the heat, when the heat is on, is a really good way to think about motivating operations. It's like, it's one thing, you know, and, and if you've ever been morbidly obese, you know, almost like you're feeling like you have split personalities. Yes. Like you wake up in the morning, today is the day. And then you're like burying yourself in pizza buffet at lunch because your boss yelled at you and you didn't eat for four hours. At least you made it to lunch. (laughs) Yeah. And so those are things, you know, I was telling a friend the other day, uh, I was talking with them about, um, about, you know, just making value driven decisions. It's like, you know, we talk about that and it's ethereal and it's warm and fuzzy. Like I'm always going to be my best version of myself. And the truth is I've come to believe that no one is immune to that heat, to those motivating operations. What we do is we start to learn to tolerate these things better. Like my tolerance of certain nastiness in my life has gotten higher than it was before. I've taught myself some ways to recognize. I think one of the things that I don't hear talked about with acceptance and commitment training enough is something that we could learn from habit reversal, which is awareness training. You know, when, you, when you're working with habit reversal, you teach those individuals to recognize their triggers um, and then do something else is often what will happen with habit reversal. And I think for me, I have enough physiological indicators that I am now out of my present moment, which means that I'm out of the vision of who I want to be and I'm reacting to right now. And I'm reacting to the fact that just like you said, I am angry or I'm upset or I've gotten in a fight with my wife or I'm hurting or I'm lonely or whatever those things are. That's nastiness. That's private nastiness that I'm choosing to attend to. We're hardwired as human beings to get away from that. So what do we do? Where do we go to? Well, why do we call things in the South comfort foods? Because Mm -hmm. they comfort us when we're feeling that way. So it's like this double whammy of now, what do I escape from? So I'm feeling like nasty inside. I'm feeling, we call it aversive stimulation. I'm feeling not so great. Like I want to crawl, claw my own skin off and get away from how I'm feeling. I want to escape that. 
very, very motivated. That's the MO that you were just, some of the MO influences you were just talking about. I'm now highly motivated to escape. That's true. Well, it's a double whammy though, Clint, as you well know. I'm not escaping that to beets or kale chips, you know. I'm not getting my coconut water and, you know, my my, uh, uh, steamed cabbage. No, I'm going to cake. I'm going to ice cream. I'm going to pizza. I'm going to all those things that have powerful reinforcing physiological properties. I feel good in my skin. So it's not only that it takes that pain away, it makes me feel good at the same time. So it's a double whammy of negative reinforcement and positive. Yeah. Uh, off camera, we were talking about those, you know, and another application, but we were talking about those schedules of reinforcement, the whole matching law idea. Right. And so, I mean, that applies to right. everything mm-hmm. we do. I think you were, you were alluding to it on Matt's podcast on the observations that you were talking about very minute and basic behavior application. Um, and I, I think that still rings true now you know, don't fix it if it ain't broken. But the the basic applications are what really drive us. That schedule of reinforcement: what are we getting versus what do we want, and is it enough? And the ratio strain and all that stuff we talk about, you know, in clinical trials, applying it to ourselves as clinicians is is very difficult, in my personal opinion, and just professionals in general, it's difficult. And I hope one of the things that we'll see in our field with the professionals and clinicians and and colleagues that are listening is uh, to me, I see congruence between this literature from relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy and all of the great work that's been done with discounting with addiction and all of these other variables. It's it's now I now am under this very aversive MO that I'm probably making even worse with my private behavior. I'm talking myself into making it very much worse than it really is. So now I'm very feeling those things. Well, then what happens is whatever immediately makes that feel better is what I'm going to value versus this delayed outcome that is also small and cumulative, right? So with weight loss, for example, it's, you know, think about the response effort we put ourselves through to lose weight. For small cumulative outcomes, if you don't, I don't, I've thought back now through, now I've lost 156 pounds as of the last mile in, and I've, I sat back and thought about that, is if I did not have a values-driven, goal-oriented plan, then I don't know how I would have made it, because you're killing yourself at first, at least you feel like you are. For like you get on the scale and you've lost two pounds. Well, crap. I mean, we're, how can it's real easy to go to that when you're 410 pounds like I was to yeah. go to that. Oh, my yeah. God, I'll never get there. Right. And so uh, because I'm and then if my life gets bad, I'm going to discount those delayed outcomes even more. I'm going to make this thing that's immediately available mm-hmm. so much. more. I call it romanticizing food. Right. Have you ever done that? It's like I'm I've deprived myself so much that it's almost like I'm in a love affair with this food. And now it's like this, this unrequited love that I'll never have. And next thing I know I'm burying myself in it. It's, it's, uh, it's, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. And, and, uh, to me, I tell people all the time that when you're dealing with physiological stimuli, you really learn how motivating operations work to a whole different level. You do. I, I completely agree. That's been my focus over the last two years, year and a half. I've lost about 60 pounds and stayed in. Thank you. Um, it's been, uh, I've been in a maintenance mode for a few, I guess the last 10 months or so. And I've been, and in my definition for maintenance, I've been, uh, I've gained about 10, 15 pounds back, but I stayed in that window for the whole time. So that was a good thing. At least I learned some skills to at least keep myself from going off the rails, but they were they were negatively reinforced because I was afraid of that uh, that certain weight. So when I'd get close to it, I would do something to get away from it. So, you, you know, know, years ago there was a study I read um, that I can't remember what journal, so I'd have to look it up. Um, sure, but it it looked at for folks who had lost significant weight and main and kept the weight off, like up to seven to ten years. They looked at what hmm. variables predicted success, and they only found one. 
Adherence to diet. Daily weighing. Oh, wow. So every time I hear people, now I can understand why someone, especially maybe someone who's been brought up under really strict cultural contingencies, like, like I tell my daughters all the time, you know, don't look at how, how the world tells you is beauty for a woman and all these other things. Look at, yeah. so I can understand why some people for their own individual reasons should avoid the scale. But for me, you know, I, it's, it's not going to lie to me. It's, is, no, is, it's data. Now I need other data now, as I'm going to talk about just a little bit on this kind of where I was with Matt, where I am now, I sure. to look at my data differently. Like if you notice, I don't wear a Fitbit anymore. I talked about the Fitbit a lot with Matt and I don't wear it anymore. Uh, that's for a, for a variety of reasons. One, it just got to be work, didn't work very well anymore. <laughs> you sweat too much on it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's that, that weighing is going to, cause I will, if I let myself slip, start to fool myself into thinking that everything's okay. And then sure I can have this. Sure. I can eat a whole basket of chips with queso at the, at the Mexican restaurant. Sure. I can go and get ice cream afterwards. Those are dangerous things for someone like me to dabble. I agree. I, someone like you could say us because I share that same issue. Um, one thing I've been, I was actually talking to my wife about this the other day. My wife is not um, in behavior analysis, but she's in counseling. So we talk quite a, it's quite a good balance in our marriage between the analytics and the, um, the emotional side. She helps me understand a lot of things too. The whole radical behaviors and peace is kind of our marriage. It's really neat. But we were talking about my daily weigh-ins and things, and I'm I'm on your side. I'm I think every day for me, I'm objective enough to see where I am, where I've been, you know, and I can use that data variably with what I've conge- or ingested from the day before, those kinds of things. But I told her, I said, you know, we've started intermittent fasting in the last few weeks, and it's working wonderfully for me. I know you have your aversions to it. But as you, as you talk about, and I'm sure you will, about what works for the individual, uh, what works for me, it, it works very well. And I was talking to her. I said, one thing I find interesting about this behavior chef idea is that we, we call it the looking at the marriage between nutrition and behavior or where nutrition meets behavior. And what that looks like is um, I'm, I'm interested in the cultural aspect of it because people sit down for a meal. Right. And what, for example, when I was a kid, dinner was this massive thing with fried potatoes. And as you referred to earlier, some comfort food. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in northern Ohio, but family from southern Kentucky. So they, oh, they oh, yeah. fried all the same kind of stuff, but maybe not as much butter as you guys use, but something similar, you know. And I grew up with that. I grew up below the poverty line, so we didn't have a lot. So we had the staples. We had butter for fat. We had, you know, uh, potatoes for starches to keep you full, beans for proteins. And, and we ate a lot of good things too, but that was a good staple in our house. So knowing that now, I talked to my wife the other day and I said, what I'm trying to do now is do that respondent unpairing for myself of that, what we were talking about CMOs. For example, to me, the cultural idea of dinner is this big meal. But um, if my fasting window closes, when I go to the gym, my fasting window is from 12 to eight. So if I go to the gym, I get off of seeing clients at 6.37 o'clock and I hit the gym real quick and I get done at 7.45. The only thing I can grab is my favorite protein shake from the shake bar for the night. Now, I know I could extend my window and all those things, but my personal values right now are keeping that window tight. So it's actually helping me unpair that I can have the nutrients in a different form other than steak and potatoes and and still lose weight and enjoy that. But I, I'm it's funny going through this, like you said, when you deal with morbid obesity, you learn more about uh, motivating operations. And I didn't realize in myself culturally how much dinner was this massive need. Well, you talked about respondent conditioning, and I think that's an important point. If you look at kind of where our field is moving with this, this um, uh, relationship we're developing with environmental science, I believe what we're going to find um, more quickly than not is there's things that are reflexive and and learn and kind of learn and acquired through respondent conditioning is even more exacerbated by how we can learn relationally. Right. So what you just talked about has absolute respondent conditioning principles to it, but this whole cultural, these culturally selected behaviors about what is a meal? Well, that's, you got to really start, peeling that onion away to say, okay, relationally, what does all that mean? Well, 
for example, I talked to a woman um, trying to lose weight, you know, several years ago. And every time she went out and crashed her diet, it was always with the same thing, mashed potatoes. And I'm sitting here going, you know what? Listen, I love mashed potatoes. I get it. But when you re- when I really started to talk to her about it, she was kind of like what you just said. Meals are important in our family. I was like, okay, why don't you tell me your earliest memory? Now, this isn't getting down a Freudian psychoanalytic standpoint, but listen to what she said. Okay, my earliest memory, being at my grandmother's house Christmas around Thanksgiving or Christmas. Okay, what are you doing? I'm playing on the floor. How do you feel in your skin? I feel very peaceful. I feel very, this is like heaven. Okay, what's going on? Who's there with you? My grandmother. What is she doing? She's making her mashed potatoes. You know, think about this. Think about how all of our senses and all the respondent properties interact relationally with other stimuli and transfer. Like, have you ever walked into a room and you smell something you've not smelled in years? And immediately you're taking. Yeah, it's that that concept of deja vu. Yeah. And so these things, there is so much about human learning that is so dynamic, but has a very dark side to it if it's if we're not careful for folks like us and i you know i I give you i'll give you this example i might have shared this on matt's podcast i've never actually listened to that because i hate the sound of my own voice you sound wonderful but uh, (laughs) but, uh, i i I tell a story often about uh i came home and uh, my daughter was i came home I, i find my wife propped up in the bed with all of her pillows her comfy blanket my daughter who was three years old at the time is sitting between her legs between my daughter's legs is a huge carton of goldfish crackers and she's shoving them in her mouth. They're watching Scooby-Doo and I can see the tear streaks down her eyes. And so I walk in and I'm like, huh, what's going on here? And my wife shakes an angry finger at me and says, Jim, you make this child eat so healthy all the time. A few goldfish won't kill her. Well, I agree. A few goldfish won't kill anyone unless you choke on them. But <laughs> but tell me what happens. Well, Josie was trying to play the piano like her sister does and give a concert and she fell off the piano and hit her head and she was very upset. Like, okay. So she was in pain and you made it go away with goldfish, the comfy blanket and Scooby-Doo. She said, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is now she's 10 And I literally got off the phone with my wife an hour ago, my wife calling me in a panic saying, I can't get Josie to do anything because she got mad at me. And now she's locked herself in her room. She's under her blanket. She's got the cart and the goldfish. And what do I hear in the background? Do. That's her comfort place. That is where she goes to take away the pain. And And when food is that outlet, see, I tend, it's dangerous. Food. Alcohol, drugs, sex, work, anything. We want when we are motivated to escape instead of moving into that pain when it moves us closer to our values, anything we take, we 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 access to escape tends to end up hurting us in the long run. And for me, it was it has been for a long time food. And I believe that we do learn, like you say, we learn those things in various ways of selection as kids. My grandmother grew up in the Great Depression. So the fact that by the time I was born, the economy was better, she had more access to money, she indulged all of her grandchildren with food. I can remember for Thanksgiving, she would cook six chocolate pies, one for each grandchild. That's amazing. Oh, it was amazing. It was like putting heaven in your mouth. And you never wanted it to go away. So, and think about this, those consequences are small and cumulative. So we tend to discount those. If the rule was I eat a a scoop of ice cream at night before bed and I wake up 50 pounds heavier tomorrow morning, ice cream would be like this rare delicacy that only rich people can access because the rest of us wouldn't want that rule at, at play. You're exactly right. And you actually said it, I think right there with just that word small, but cumulative. And that's the thing when, you know, we talk about discounting where we're able to basically for those listening, we're able to push past our future goals for the momentary pleasure of whatever we're doing now. Um, and when we do things like that, we, we do it, it picks up steam. 
So we end up doing it one night and the next night and the next night. Next thing we know, it's three months down the road and we're heavier than we were when we started our journey. We're wondering what's going on. And that's happened. I'm I'm saying that because that's been my story several different times. Yeah, we go into this cycle. It's like you, you wake up on Monday and you're like, okay, today, this is it. This is the start. And maybe you power through Monday because maybe you didn't do some of the things that I found effective for me, which is really take some baseline data on your intake yeah. and really, really program based off of where you are. Not So maybe you wake up and you've gone, you don't even know you've gone from 8,000 calories a day and today you're going to go to 1,800 power through, but you're miserable. That sounds terrible. You're so miserable. It's so terrible. And then Tuesday, you're just like, and then something happens and you're like, okay, just lunch, just lunch. And I'm back on plan. But then the rest of the day, you're now you're thinking you're, you know, pounding yourself with guilt. That's another type of MO. It's going to make it more likely that I'm going to go to those foods. So by Tuesday night, maybe you're now having that extra bowl of ice cream and you wake up Wednesday morning. You're like, oh, screw this. I'm not doing this. I'm now going next week will be the week. And then here's what here's what sick people like me do is once I do that, it's like, okay, now I'm just going to eat however I want. But Sunday night, because Monday's the start day, I'm going to have a food party. I'm going to have whatever I want, as much as I want. Well, you cycle through that a few times. And now in the period of time you hope to to lose 20 pounds, you've gained 40 pounds, you know, because it just keeps repeating this, this, this cyclic pattern of behavior. It's sad that I I understand that so well, but I I think (laughs) if, um, if our reach is as good as I hope it is, I think a lot of people listening are going to gravitate towards those words just as much because that's, that's a very, very common thing in a country, frankly, with the statistics, you know, we're about data. We're one of the most obese countries, if not the, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, one of the most obese countries. I live in the most obese state in the most obese country. Sure. Yeah. Well, all that butter <laughs> doesn't help, does it? Well, maybe it's not butter. Is it lard or butter that you guys use so much? It's, it's a lot. Both? both. Oh, I, no it's wonder. Awesome. <laughs> you know, you know for, I, I didn't know this. I did a, a radio interview recently with a registered dietitian in Mississippi. And she told me during one of the breaks, cause you know that fried food only came into existence because of the great depression, because it was a way to, to really in, significantly increase the caloric intake when there was a time of famine in our country. Really? They were literally worried about starvation. It just so happened that they also discovered that, wow, you can fry just about anything and make it delicious. Agreed. <laughs> You've been to a state fair. <laughs> oh, Yes. And let me tell you, I'm not quite sure what's in funnel cake. Heaven. But I hope I hope that if there is a heaven that we have caloric free funnel cake <laughs> in a river and we and we swim down a river of white chocolate as we eat. I think I could sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. It's, I could cannonball. I could totally understand that. Um you know, you were talking earlier about alluding to some of your current uh stata stata, your current status. I want to say data and status at the same time, but why don't you share with our listeners? Um, Cause you might be somebody who can say words correctly tonight, but why don't you share something right. with our listeners about uh, where you are right now and what you're working on and just what I was interested to hear where you are now with act integration with your personal journey. It's been a little while and I don't know if you're still doing it as much. I mean, I know you're always using act principles, but I don't know if you're specific. We haven't really talked about this off camera. So if you have anything to add, I'd love to hear it now. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just wanted to take a second to remind you of a great group that we've got on Facebook called Behavior Analysts Get Fed. If you are in the field of ABA in some capacity, this group is for you. Inside this group, we discuss all things nutrition as related to our field. We talk about our personal stories, our struggles, our triumphs, and we just share a great community together. So again, that's Behavior Analysts Get Fed on Facebook. Come check us out. We'd love to have you. I, you know, I, I don't know that the approach has really changed all that much. I'm finding now that where, when I was up, when I appeared with Matt, I really had to talk about act with my nutrition a lot because that was a big one. That was a big, and if you re- recall at that point, I really talked about how I didn't make significant expectations related to f- working out it was really about trying to fix my dysfunctional relationship with food. And 
Now, what I have to basically do is a daily practice. I find that I wake up every morning basically at ground zero when it comes to my present moment awareness. It's like I, I don't get to build up momentum with that, right? It's like it resets every morning. I got to start back over. I have to really get in. For me, I meditate. Uh, I have to really focus on, you know, I've kind of moved away from where I used to try and just be like this kind of empty mind concept to where now it's like not really struggling with those thoughts. It's like, huh, I just craved, you know, like, like today I'm doing a peak training in Wichita, Kansas, and they ordered a pizza, two pizzas, one pepperoni and one sausage that were literally, I could not even stretch my arms out and I'm six, four and, and cover the circumference of that pizza. And now I can eat from my diet, the toppings on it, Oh, I wanted to eat the crust so badly. And I was able to say, well, thank you, mine, for reminding me that I could literally eat this whole pizza. And I could have. And it would not have been a problem. People would have been astonished. They would be posting on Facebook about it now. But I didn't have to really do much with that, except thank my mind. I've, I've learned how to give myself some space through diffusion practices mm -hmm. between myself and what I call the beast that lives in me, which is the beast that wants to eat all the time. Sure. That's me it sounds like me it knows me uh but now i've learned how at first i used to really have to tell myself all the time don't feed the beast now it's just kind of like i've accepted that that i used to think early in the journey that i would get past it and the beast would just die i'd, I'd choke him out with extinction so much that he'd be gone forever now i've just realized that that uh he's with me forever but now i'm finding with act that for me, I've, I've discovered a new part of my private voice, which I call the coward. The coward always wants to quit in a workout because now I'm at a level of, of the level of intensity I have to put into a workout to achieve the same result now is significantly higher than it was a year ago. Things that I have to do to still force my body to adapt and, and get healthier is, is at times. And so every morning I kind of encounter the coward, the coward wants to quit. And I now I used to fight. I can remember back in my first uh, journey through fitness. Oh my God, I would be a mental wreck after a CrossFit workout. Mm. Cause I'd sit there and fight with that voice the whole time. And I'd start to hyperventilate. I'd panic breathe and just all these things. And now it's just, yeah, you want to quit, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm stepping into this suffering because one, it's temporary. And two, I know now that at the, at the, on the other side of that, I will feel even better because I will have stepped closer toward my, a better version of myself than the guilt. I, see, because th this is what happened. Say I do quit. Say I don't do things exactly up to what I know I could do. Well, I'm going to live with that now the rest of the day. That guilt becomes that MO that we were talking about earlier that now is going to drive me eventually towards something to make me feel better. That will not be something healthy for me. So the status for me now is just really accepting that this is just going to happen. This is just, you know, uh, I've had to learn uh, the, the best version of myself for workouts, a braver version of myself to move toward that suffering. You know, like uh, I posted on Facebook, my workout today, I dropped into a, a gym here in Wichita very, very nice people had no idea what they would do. Well, they decided they're going to destroy our legs today. And uh, so I'm in the workout. And, you know, if you've never been in a CrossFit environment, there's lots of really kind of sort of weird rule governed behavior that's going on. Like you're trying to beat one another. You're trying to, you're trying, you're cheering for one another, but you're also trying to beat one another and you're trying to not stop. Well, by the end of the workout, um, you know, I literally just had to say, you know, thank you, coward. We're almost done. And just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward, you know, and um, I don't have to be the best. I don't have to finish first. I don't have, I just need to continue to, to step toward that discomfort because that discomfort will make me a better version of myself. In a, in a less eloquent way, I actually posted something similar recently on, on uh, our Instagram page because I, a few months ago, I started going back to the gym again as we were talking about off camera. And the one reason I was able to stick to it 
it's kind of what you're talking about when you get away from things and your mind takes over and you just start those negative thoughts back. So when I'm not in the gym for a long time, it's aversive to go back because there's work involved. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So to get going back, I went back in and I would do, I made a deal with myself for continuous reinforcement. 10 minutes of cardio got me a shake from the shake bar. I did that three times a week, got a shake every single time. And, um, but the funny thing is to this day, we're, we're three months later, four months later, and I'm still doing the continuous reinforcement. However, um, the criteria to achieve the reinforcement has changed. So now instead of 10 minutes of cardio, I'm up to, uh, 45 minutes to an hour of weights plus 20 minutes of cardio a day, and then I can get a, a shake. And then that's accompanied with my, my diet. So it's either opening my fasting window or closing my fasting window. So it's, it's quite funny when people hear someone like you tell the story. I know someone's going to listen to this in their car or whatever and say, yeah, Jim, I get it. Or, you know, Clint, I understand what you're saying, but the, they're not going to do anything with what we're saying because they don't get the, the concept of what we're putting out there, the idea of saying it's okay to have the coward. You know, it's okay to recognize that's in you. Yes. I used to wreck myself, and, and, and I don't want to get, because I don't consider myself a mystical person, but let's say that I have emotional energy or spiritual energy or just some level of energy. If I now try, and, and Stephen Hayes talks about this in his, in his TED Talk on acceptance and commitment therapy. It's like, if you're trying to run, fight, hide from those things. And he actually says, I love this statement. He makes that Ted talk. I will not run from me anymore. And I'm now devoting, think about the mental exhaustion you put yourself in trying to fight with that voice. And so now I just accept it. It's going to be there. And it's funny that you say that because I, I, I just realized that I set up some contingencies. I really didn't even, uh, anticipate where a lot of all this negative uh, dual actioning re positive and negative reinforcement can work in a positive way. For example, if I tank my workout or quit or whatever, I, I have a little routine after my workout. I sit down. If I'm by myself in my, in my garage gym, that's my time with Ollie dog. And I have a shake. I love the muscle milk, uh, the, the, the professional grade um, chocolate muscle milk very low in carbs, very rich in protein. I've, I've researched that one pretty, pretty extensively. And then I have uh, uh, a, a branch chain amino acid post-workout drink that's fruit punch and it's delicious. And um, uh, I saw it actually on Shantae Gold's Instagram and tried it uh, because Shantae does a lot of research of every single substance she puts in her body. And, um, and I, I did my own research as well. So anyway, and so I, but if I don't, or if I'm like this morning at CrossFit Wichita, stayed after, met some people, visited, had, had my little post-workout little, cause I love that muscle milk. It's delicious. I love that post-workout drink, but I've noticed that if I don't, if I don't really meet my expectations, I don't do those things. And so I'm kind of working it's almost as if you get done, you get done, you get done. And now I get the same kind of payoff that I used to get with horrible food. But now I've put in this amount of work to earn that. Almost like a little mini contingency contract with myself. I think it's really, for me, it's, it's really helpful. And, and um, you know, one of the things I, I used to say that, you know, I think when I was on Matt's podcast, kind of as another update, Every morning, I had to program my phone to show a picture of my youngest daughter, Josie, because her asking me if I'd still be alive to see her graduate was a big catalyst for me starting this second journey. Now, I don't have to do that because now it's like, you know, the longer I lay in bed, the longer I delay this workout, the less time I'm going to have to sit on my butt post-workout and enjoy company of people or company of Ollie Dog which by the way, we don't deserve dogs. That company is, is always awesome. I agree. I'm a, I'm a 6'3", 290-pound uh, guy myself. I have a four-pound Maltese. <laughs> she is, uh, I should say my wife has one. She lets me borrow, but she, I get it completely. We don't deserve them whatsoever. And so now, you know, as I wake up and I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, I'm able to just take a quick little 
present moment inventory about, okay, I value the time that I, I will give myself to have a cup of coffee, to have that protein drink, to just have some peace and serenity before starting my work day. And so the longer I lay in bed, I'm now really decreasing the magnitude of that reinforcing context. Sure. And get me right up. It got me on the road. I was on the road of Wichita, Kansas at 4.30 this morning trying to find that gym. Sure. I, I think one thing I've been thinking about very along the, along the same lines that you're talking about is the um, the interesting thing about those moments when we take that step forward towards that discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. So those things that we consider to be aversive, um, when we lean into them, we, there's something that happens with the, the whole operant conditioning there and respondent, I'm sure. But those things all of a sudden become their own reinforcers. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. and so it's, it's interesting to me when it comes to health and fitness that if we apply the principles in small incremental change and then we meet those small little plateaus and work towards, or not plateaus, those small little, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Small little victories. We meet mm-hmm. those and then we go on towards those bigger ones and then finally, whatever we started the mountain journey, we thought was very difficult. Now it's something that we enjoy. Or for you, it becomes the motivating operation we were once trying to escape. Yep, yep. So, so another uh, that, that's absolutely right. And, I, and so, as I reflect on the last year with some other changes, is uh, you know my main dependent variable. Of course, I talked a lot about uh, kind of like. Uh, a version of demand fading for my caloric intake and getting to where it was where I needed it to be in a healthy, progressive way through fading about looking at my exercise and intensity level and all those things to a certain extent are still true. But now, um, you know, I started this journey saying, you know, I want to be 225 pounds. Why? I don't know. I was 225 pounds my last time through CrossFit. Um, but, you know, on this B phase, my first weight loss, I didn't really know anything about this. I really, I, I, I dove into as much research as I could find, which in the fields of kinesiology and nutrition and all that, not really as much as you would think there would be of good solid science. Uh, and so, but I still... For, like I can remember when I was 225 pounds, I was looking at it you know, to kind of put it into perspective. My last weigh in, I was 255 pounds. And so that's 30 pounds away from that goal. Right. And so, uh, and I've been around 255, 250, 255 now for a couple of months, but I've gone from a size 38 pants down to where now, depending on the cut of the pants, I can get into a 34 or a 36. Wow. Congratulations. Six at 225 pounds. So now it's not necessarily about the weight, but the the measurements and the the measurements. And I have, uh, I've gone and see another thing for me being recovering from morbid obesity is there's just a vast amount of loose skin that is hard to really factor into how much does that drive my weight? Well, they actually have, something called a DEXA scan, which is kind of like a full body MRI X-ray that really now can tell me, here's the amount of your weight that's your skeleton. Here's the amount of weight that's your lean uh, muscle mass. Here's fat. And here's what is your skin. That's uh, crazy. It's fairly accurate. And what I've discovered now is, wow, because I knew more, especially about weightlifting this time than I did the first time I got into fitness, I've built significantly more lean body mass than I did my last weight loss. That's fantastic. So now it's kind of like you're trading off and what they say is true. Muscle weighs more than fat. Mm-hmm. So five pounds of fat is going to take up a lot more space than five pounds of muscle. Right. I'm finding that for me, that's true. But if all I allowed my DV to be right now is the number on the scale I'd be, I'd be probably on the verge of quitting right now because there's still times where I get on that scale and because I've, I'm a rigid, crazy, rule-governed human, I want to still drive toward 225. Sure. And I get on that scale and it says 252 and I really want to take the scale and throw it across the gym. But then I have to get perspective. Okay, now let's go in, let's measure. Oh, wow, my measurements are changing in a positive way. I'm now fitting in a different clothing 
that, that I like. I like how, I, you know, my, my daughter actually complimented me the other day saying, dad, you have such nice taste in clothes. Well, when you're a big morbidly obese guy, you don't have very many options. Uh, so those things are, are so measuring, you know, for me, it's waist, hips, cat, uh, quad, neck, and bicep. Those are the measures that I take consistently. And now with this DEXA scan, which I'm, I'm probably going to start, it's only about a hundred dollars. I'm going to do it probably about every six months. Just to, kind of bad. just to see where you're at. Right. So, you know, I was 225 and 20% body fat. And now I'm 255 and 16% body fat. So to me, that's Did a you better say 16? Result. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, for Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm under no illusions that I'm going to be like these bodybuilders that are 9 to 11%. But if I can stay right around – if I can stay around – 16 to 20% as a 47 year old dad that who, who works with kids with autism, I'm going to be pretty happy with that. I think you're doing all right. So it's, you know, it's been, but trying to find just like we would do with any client, the best, most sensitive way to measure and to constantly scrutinize the quality of that measurement, I think, is something that behavior analysis can bring to health and fitness. And now, in ways that technology can aid that are just mind blowing. You know, some of these apps now where you can take a picture of your plate and it's going to give you a, an estimate of the caloric and macronutrient breakdown of what's on that plate. Is yeah, crazy. I, I was actually, that segues quite well into my next question because after all these you know, the, the great things we've been talking about with applied behavior analysis as applied to our own journeys. I was going to ask in your long journey, um, your second journey that you've been on so uh, strongly, speaking of applications and, and technology, have you found any, you know, are there any tips or tricks you want to give our listeners or any applications specifically you want to give a shout out to that really help you stay on track day to day? Uh, well, actually, in my first journey through fitness, one of the one of the things that I one of the areas that I worked in was I worked with uh, exercise physiologist, and a, in Mississippi, you have to be a registered dietitian to legally give dietary advice. And so, I worked on a multidisciplinary team with individuals with morbid obesity, uh, and this is why I also owned a CrossFit gym that Brit said. You know, if people have seen the Olympic weightlifting study that we published recently in Java, that was one area that I was doing. But I was also, uh, Aaron Donovan and I are presenting some of the weight loss data from that clinic uh, at FABA this weekend. And it was really a combination of contingency contracting and ACT to basically do what I think a behavioralist is keenly trained to do in health and fitness, which is adherence. I, I've I've looked at a variety of studies on both nutritional plans and exercise plans, and what I co- what I constantly see is the variable that predicts success is adherence. So it doesn't matter if it's the South Beach diet, the Mediterranean diet, Sugar Busters diet, keto diet, whatever diet, if they stick to it, it tends to work. It doesn't matter if they're doing Orange Theory or CrossFit or um, Billy Blanks. Was that the guy that used to do? Uh, Tybo. Uh, and then what? Yeah, the P90X and all these other things. It doesn't really matter as long as they adhere. Well, adhere is just a different word for compliance. And we're really great at getting people to comply. Yeah, we know reinforcement so, well. Yeah. And so what we did with this group of data that we're that we're uh, showing is we basically just had a two-part contingency contract that we that we kind of overlaid with ACT. So they would meet with me, and we'd basically we basically help them uh, come up with their values related to this journey. We talked about present moment awareness, but really we had to give them and what we're calling it in this talk is a contrived mediating stimulus, which is we basically had to give them something away from us. Because I'm not going to be right there with them when the heat's on. Sure. You know, it's not like the old Flintstone cartoon where he's got the angel Fred and the devil Fred, and they're telling them different things. No, they need something to help point them toward their values. And so we did two parts, and we evaluated it with both 
three individuals in a multiple baseline, but we also compared across groups of about 100 people each. Um, in, in the first phase, it was just simple. We would come in, we would talk about the steps of ACT, we'd do different exercises related to that, practicing things like diffusion and, and, and then kind of role-playing when you take a, a committed action towards your values, even when the heat's on. But really, it was phase one, okay, sign this contract. The dietitian's giving you a meal plan. The exercise physiologist is giving you an exercise plan. And we really want to focus on the food side of this. The rule one, we agree that off-plan eating is allowed if you're willing to take a picture and send it to your weight loss technician. Just using a text, snap that picture and text it to them. If the answer to that is yes, take the picture and then have it. Eat that, whatever it is. And we defined off-plan eating as anything not on the nutritional plan. So even like broccoli. You want to eat a big old bowl of broccoli. It's not programmed for right now. That's fine. Ask yourself, am I willing to take this picture and send it? And uh, now, again, we're not right there with them. So they can lie to us. So our dependent variable for us was their weight loss, which is kind of an indirect measure that we're now kind of asserting. But we found for about, at least from the group, about 90% of those folks stayed on plan just then. They'd say, nope, don't want to do that. Don't want to have to talk about it. Because if they sent the picture, that was the first topic brought up in their next session with me. It's okay, let's now, let's deconstruct what happened here. And let's review from an ACT perspective what would be a different way to handle that in the future. Well, for 90% of the people, they just didn't even, just that accountability, you can call it accountability if you want but just having to be accountable to another human being about, Hey, I'm about to go off plan worked for a lot of them. Now for the three and for about 8% of, of our group for these three, we put in a multiple baseline, they needed another level. So we added a second level to the contract, which was, okay, you're going to write your values related to this journey on a card. You're going to have them with you somewhere. And if you've taken the picture, you agree that off plan eating you don't even imagine the reports we got by just saying, oh, I can have that if you choose to, sure. Just that, removing that mental b battle for them, like feel like, oh, I can't have this. I can't have it. I can't have it. We're saying you can have it if you do these things. And we agree to that. And so the second phase of the contract was, okay, you've taken the picture, you've sent it. Ask yourself, I still want that. Okay, take out your values card, read it four times. And then ask yourself again, do you want... Now, why the four times? Just, I don't know. Pulled it out of the air. Just repetition. We said, eat it four times. It's really, to me, a lot of times when you're under that, that severe MO influence, doing anything that causes you to pause in that moment and not react impulsively is a good thing. We figured four times, okay, and then ask, Okay, now having reflected on my goals, on my values, do I still want that? And for these three individuals, we found that the overall, and for eight, another 8% 8 of our sample, the overarching answer was no. And we'd hear things such as, wow, when I literally read my values, first of all, we found that from the reports we got, it seemed to be important that they wrote those themselves. Like we just didn't type it out for That's them awesome. or send them a text reminding them their values. It was their handwriting. One lady said, I remember how I felt when I read this. Yeah. And it made me look at that food differently. Like, wow, this isn't my friend. This is my enemy. I can remember how important this journey is to me. That's great. It's almost like they paused. One woman said it was like she was slapped in the face and woken out of her delusion of food. Um, and really then say, then when we tell them in the contract, now ask yourself, it's like you're now at the choice point. Am I going to step toward my values and through all this pain, or am I going to step toward the immediate availability of food and all the things that come with that? And so I would say if you can find tangible ways, because if all you do is kind of sit in your, in your house in the morning in, a, in, in like an ethereal dream state, meditate on your values, for me, they have to be written down. I have to be able to see that. I have to then go through, kind of make contingency contracts with myself, as we talked about with my exercise and, and that little post-workout uh, free operant reinforcement I get. That's kind of a contingency contract.
you know, so there are a lot of apps out there. Um, I've connected uh, Aaron Donovan with a lady named Lauren Glassman, who CrossFit people may recognize the last name Glassman. Lauren is the co-founder of CrossFit and Greg Glassman's ex-wife. She is now developing an app called Manifest, which we're hoping she'll allow us to help infuse some of these very behavioral analytic principles into this. It's kind of remote coaching from both nutrition and for food. Um, again, I think the technology, um, I know that Julie posts a lot about Noom on the uh, behavior the health uh, SIG. I've not looked into that, so I don't know much about it. I've seen uh, a few bits and pieces in it. It's, it seems to be really derived from CBT more than, more than ACT itself, but um, maybe I haven't seen too much myself either, but it looks a little bit of RFT, not so much ACT, but more of the cognitive behavioral side. So it's, right. it's edging in that direction. I really, for me, again, I think I alluded to it a little while. If I had to give somebody a tip, I just can't say get into my present moment because if by the time I've done that, I've already lost it. Sure. I have, like I said, look at the habit reversal literature and awareness training. I have to literally get so in tune with those antecedents that I'm already now actively looking to pause and bring myself back to now. And then again, kind of like what we did, read the values card four times. It's just a matter of I need to pause and let my rule govern side catch up with the direct acting contingency side that wants to act now. And so I had to train myself. Like for me, I can, when I start to sweat, when I really start to feel that tightness in my chest, respirations going up, all those physiological signs I have now, and that's not just with food, that's at work too. You know, I was meeting with our state's Medicaid director last week, and I could tell I was, I mean, I was literally clenching my glasses to where I'm like, man, I'm about to break my glasses. I might need to get away from there and come back to here. There being that place of, of impulsive gym that's going to do or say something that I'm going to regret later. So habit reversal literature, look into it in awareness training. I think it's, it's a component of act that, kind of gets taken for granted. Like you just tell somebody, get into your present moment. Well, how about, do I always have to be, like we do act with kids with autism. I'm not always going to be there to go, yo, hey, Clint, get into your present moment. I have to do something to teach them how to mediate that themselves. Jim, our conversation has been fantastic and it's really been uh, illuminating. And some of the research that you're getting into, I'm really interested in. And I know some of our, our listeners will be as well. As we kind of wrap up a little bit, I was wondering if you had, let's say, one or one or two, I guess, nuggets that you would leave with the busy ABA professional or the, uh, you know, the mom on the go, the busy dad, whatever it might be, the person that's listening, that's really thinking, okay, what are some of these things that I can implement right now uh, when I get home or, or right today, a thought that I could really start to snowball in the right direction. If you had one or two things to give somebody kind of in a little tool chest, what, what, what would that be from Dr. Jim Moore? For me, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The more preparation I can do. Uh, now, it's real easy. I was talking to a woman who's coming to FABA with me. And she's coming from overseas. Oh, my gosh, I can't do my meal prep. I can't do this. I can't do that. Well, I travel a lot. We all travel a lot. Learn what you can eat at various places. It's going to be something. It's almost impossible for me to get somewhere where I can't find something. But sometimes I have to do that research ahead of time. Uh, Technology allows us to do that. If I see that, hey, I'm going to be home for a couple of weeks, I'm going to take any moment I can to prep as much food and freeze as possible. I'm going to take that with me if I can. I've had to do things like I put a television in my kitchen to help make cooking more enjoyable. Now I don't need it because now the enjoyment of cooking in and of itself is reinforcing, you know, so do those things to make those less chores and more fun and, and more a celebration of taking committed action toward the life that you want to have. And, you know, you've seen some of the videos, I got an instant pot. So then everything had to be an instant pot recipe. It became fun. It became like a challenge to figure out what I could cook. 
Um, you know, those types of things that make, I mean, if we make it fun, that's reinforcing. We're going to want to do those things more often. So whatever you do, try to get yourself in the frame of mind that this is fun investment. You know, I hear a lot of talk about self-care. For me, this is the most important self-care I can do. So I need to make it fun. You know, I've gotten to where now my wife and I will cook together. I now cook for her most weeks. Uh, I mean, how many, how many husbands are out there cooking for the whole family? You probably do a lot of that. I find it. I do. Now, whereas I do. a year ago, it was kind of a chore. And then sure. I beat myself up. If I don't have a lot of time and all I can do is cook a bunch of chicken and green beans and lots of different things, that's going to be okay too. You know, preparation, you know, if you've got to, tri- if, you've, if you're in your car a lot, try to find those things that you can surround yourself with. Try to pace out consumption of foods that are healthy. Plan that ahead of time. We're all tired. We get it. But you're digging a hole for yourself by not investing that little bit of time in yourself to plan out healthy eating and some activity. That's a great nugget of truth, Jim. Um, before we end up wrapping up here, I just want to give you the floor. If you want to um, you know, disseminate some information of your own, anything that you're working on or, or tell our listeners some more about you, uh, please take this time to go ahead and do so. Well, I tell you, I believe that, you know, if a few years ago, Al Poling wrote an article, I believe that was in the behavior analyst. It might've been in a different journal. But he basically talked about the danger of our field putting all of our eggs in the autism basket. And I, I, I think about that all the time. And then, so now we've seen some, you know, things like this podcast. We have a few publications. We have a special interest group. And so now everybody is wanting to see a growth of behavior analysts in this area. And I believe that it's possible. If we were to, to, to get a, a seat at the obesity table, Think about that population versus the autism population um, and the, the impact that we could have on the world. But we have to learn a little bit about how this happened for autism. If we want insurance to, 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 to view us as quality healthcare providers. So what, what made it, what gave us a seat at the table? You may hate LOVAS and everything those studies had to do, but we would not have insurance mandates without those randomized control trials. So for our friends at the academic level, Single case methodology is awesome, but we will not get a foothold in, in the rest of the world if we do not start pushing forth randomized controlled trials that show the efficacy of behavior analysis in weight loss. Is it fun? It's not the most fun ever, but it's vitally important. We, you know, I think the private pay market is pretty, pretty large in this area, but you look at these disparities in these poverty areas low incomes, high rates of obesity. If we don't somehow crack into the Medicaid world, the Medicare world, the uh, insurance world, and we have to do that by our friends in academia, putting out those big studies and replicating them. So we all have to work together in this, just like we found with autism. We need to have those grassroots movements on the ground. What is our version of Autism Speaks in obesity? What's that organization that's going to pick up that mantle and, and organize that grassroots, camp, grassroots campaign? How do we then, then there's a lot, of, a lot of noise right now about what training does a behavior analyst need to be competent in this area. And that really depends on what are you going to do. If you want to coach weightlifting, well, yeah, you need to be a trained weightlifting coach. And you'll be a great one with all your knowledge of behavior analysis. But if you've not been trained in that, now, you need to help someone stick to a, an exercise plan. and You've got some uh, uh, experience in that with that uh, age population. I don't know how much additional certification you're going to need if you're working with another trained professional. So it's what is the behavior analyst doing? I think we have multiple roles we can have. So, But all of us working together, like one of the things that I do, I, I'm now getting asked to review all these papers that are coming to journals. And I put my name and my email on that review. So I unblind myself as a reviewer because I want us all to have a conversation. We cannot be territorial about this. We have to work together if we want to change the world with behavior analysis in this realm. And I think we can do it. And I think if we did, it would change the game for our science and our, and our practice. I completely agree, Jim. Um, I couldn't think of a better way to, 
end on such a passionate uh, speech. And I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying. So Jim, uh, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thank you for coming on. Thank and you for the invitation. No problem at all. I'm sure this won't be the last time. Uh, I really appreciate all you're doing and I can't wait to follow up. Thanks for checking out episode two of the Behavior Chef podcast. We hope you really enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Jim Moore today. If you want to find out more, please visit www.behaviorchef.com. Again, at The Behavior Chef on all social media platforms. And drop us a line at thebehaviorchef at gmail.com.